Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Darwalt. And I'm Aliana Johnson. Welcome to L Ink Stained Retros, where we break down what's going wrong and what is going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, I'm sitting here regarding Colin Chicola, and I realized something. How many garments does Colin own that could be described as lake washed? Because the only <laughs> descriptor for the shirt that he is wearing, which is like an indigo blue that has been faded to a, a gentle blue by what I think L.L. Bean refers to as lake washing. And I think Colin may own more lake washed garments than any <laughs> other person. True or false? Every He's always wearing something that he could be wearing in his canoe. Totally. It, look, at, at any moment. The, the, Are you actually outdoorsy? No. <laughs> but, but you if, just admire their style? But, okay. if, but if somebody was like, who, who, <laughs> camp counselor, stolen valor. Exactly. Who will run, who will run our elite camp in the Adirondack mountains? It will be that gentleman in the Lake Wash shirt. So congratulations on that. But Colin also reminds us that we need to tell people about where to get their best El Recho's experience. And that is by signing up for our newsletter, which they can do by going to nebulouspodcast.com. They will find the place to sign up for high El Recho's right there. They will do that. And then what else should they be doing? They can also email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com, wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com if you want to sign up for the newsletter. And make Colin work for it. But then after that, you what should, should they also, do? should yes. also please leave us ratings and reviews. It is the best way to indicate that you love us and support us and if you hear us, we want us to know that we hear you. I I've heard I your complaints but. about my microphone usage and I'm endeavoring to do the work this week. I'm going to do the work and do better and not move my microphone I learned around. Long, I learned a long time to never, long time ago, never to read the comments. But we, I am reading the comments. We do, ha we are kind of having a little bit of a wretches moment and we appreciate it and we appreciate all the attention and all that stuff. So, for Colin, for the good of the order, please give us a good review so that we can maximize the wretch moment. And leave us a rating, a good rating. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, obviously yes. six stars. Obviously. Obviously. All right. Front page, front page. This week. What could we it have, be about? Yes. We have the media. It. it Basically, I think the title of this episode is going to have to be It's 2016, 2015 All Over Again. It's 2015 All Over Again. Deja Vu 2015 with, I mean, the coverage of this Trump arraignment. It was like, ah, uh, and his plane is on the tarmac well, in Palm Beach. To, yeah. let's, listen to, let's listen to your colleagues at the Free Beacon put together a, what do we call this, a supercut of the breathlessness of the Trump goes Trump goes to court coverage. Many of us will remember where we were on that day as we witness a critical moment in this country's democracy. It is a serious, somber, solemn moment. You feel it in your bones. Just a few moments ago, we saw former President Trump leaving his home in Trump Tower. It is a trip that he's made countless times, Mar-a-Lago to New York City, but never like this. In a 
surreal spectacle, vaguely reminiscent of the infamous O.J. Simpson Bronco chase. As we're watching the motorcade. We have numerous shots. We've got an aerial view. A live look at the plane on the tarm tarmac. There he is. Let's just take a moment and watch. The start of a whirlwind 36 hours in the city where Trump built his empire. Barricades all around this area. A heavy, heavy media presence. Look at the motorcade route. We're going to go from Trump Tower all the way to the Manhattan Criminal Courthouse. So he will walk down the hallway. That is the hallway that drug dealers walk down. So first of all, yes. Second of all, I, I agree with Paul Fari's point that he made in the Washington Post, which is, what and I was part of this. I was a participant in this kind of coverage because I was on TV many times that day. That was Tuesday. Yes. So yes. I was on TV. I was on TV many times talking about this stuff. There's just not that much to show, right? TV is a visual medium. There just wasn't that much to show. This was ridiculous. It was just every movement. And here's Trump Tower, and he's exiting Trump Tower, and his SUVs are driving down the Parkway in New York, and. Because they couldn't actually, I mean, the coverage this merited was he's entering the courthouse. He's being arraigned. Right. What does this mean? We really did not need to be tracking the plane from, you know, an hour on the tarmac in Palm Beach to its landing in New York, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all night long, the commentary on this, it does show that nobody's learned anything from seven years ago. And... Trump is controlling and dominating the news cycle. Here's Paul Fari. The first this pool is in the Washington Post. The per, first pool photos from inside the courtroom emerged a few minutes later. The judge permitted five still photographers to shoot pictures from the jury box, but dismissed them before the main event began. The shots were in many ways ordinary. Trump sitting at the defendant's table, flanked by lawyers, but in their own way, they were unprecedented and extraordinary. And TV anchors seized upon them, eager to have something to analyze. He doesn't look like somebody who thinks the indictment is nonsense, said CNN's Jake Tapper. He looked really irritated and annoyed. That is a pissed off Donald Trump. No question, added his colleague Jamie Gangle. That is an angry Donald Trump. Now, let me tell you something. Donald Trump looks angry in his official presidential photo. He's grinning, but he looks like he's about to beat somebody's brains in. Donald Trump looks angry almost all of the time. And look, this is something that you've heard from me many times. One of the problems in our business is that we love what can be scheduled, right? So breaking news is really hard to cover because you don't have people there to cover the breaking news. Something happens and you're like, oh my gosh, who do we have in Georgia? How do we get somebody from the Atlanta Bureau to go up and do that if there's some you know, plane crash or catastrophe? But if something's on the calendar, you can fill the streets of Manhattan. You can charter the helicopters. You can do all of the stuff to cover it. And at the end... And I don't want to I don't want to downplay the consequences of this case in either direction, but it's a thing that happened and we'll see we'll see what comes of it. But like, geez, Louise, it is a big deal. The the fact of the indictment, the details of the case itself, all, all of those things are interesting. The status of Trump's plane and Trump's precise whereabouts at every moment on this day are not a big deal. Right. At all. Um, they are, you know, in. Ephemera. How much that would they take have loved? Airtime. How much would they have loved if Trump ran? Right, like if Trump absconded. They were comparing it to the. They, well, they it wanted was not that. They were it was comparing it to the, the O.J. Simpson, the uh, like Bronco was, chase, except that Trump was like willingly going to the courthouse, and they, the, the, in their wildest dreams, it would have been that. Okay, and tr and Trump knew how 
to do it, right? He knew how to get the attention, play it up, stage it, and all that stuff. And then, of course, at the end, and this is something I think that bears remembering, the narrative on both sides is that this is somehow, that this is good for Donald Trump, especially as it relates to winning the Republican nomination. And there's certainly truth in that. But watching his speech at Mar-a-Lago that night, I could only conclude that they had been too aggressive in their media strategy on this and that they had pushed it too far because he got out there and that room wanted to go bonkers for him. They wanted to do it. And if he would have could have given a five-minute speech that opened in high-minded regret and closed with an I will be your vengeance. What does he say? I'll be your retribulation. I'll be your vengeance. I'll be your whatever, but like I'll, you know, only I can fix it in American carnage. If he would have closed with that, it would have been a big boom. But instead it was like, wait, what are we talking about? This is your your leverage rate? I don't know. But anyway. I don't quite think that the length of the speech is why this is not actually good for him, though it I think it's an indication of where his head is at. It's that, and you can see him, by the way, trying to kick the can down the road. He wants to move it to a different jersey. Staten Island. Move it out yeah, to Staten, to Staten, Staten Island, and he move wants a different judge. Yeah. And then he also, you know, Mills basically- by to preside. He's yes. trying to kick the can down the road on this thing so that when it goes to trial, it'll be like, you know, 2029. But he's staring down three more indictments, and yeah. who knows what's going to happen with those. Like, I, I think Occam's razor, this is not actually good for him. Well, it may be good for him. But and- it will be amazing and hilarious if the judge throws out the case, because the case is stupid. And that's one of the things, I said it last week, we'll say it again, we don't know how this is going to go. We don't know who this is going to work for. Somebody who knows how it works, though, is James Barron of the New York Times, who you put this in there. I loved this, because the... The media coverage of this, they so need this to be a serious case. And I loved, I also was watching Jake Tapper's interview with Michael Cohen and like taking every word out of this guy's mouth so seriously. But this is the New York Times headline, April 4th. So this is Tuesday at 1230 on the middle right. of the day. Trump will be arraigned today. Clinton will be honored. That's the headline. You know, just right down the middle, analysis from the New York Times. New York, will, New York be will be focused today on the arraignment of a former president, the first proceeding of its kind in American history. But other things are on the day's agenda besides Donald J. Trump's scheduled appearance for booking, fingerprinting, and entering a plea in court. In the evening, a private club Arrow. on East 66th Street will continue a tradition dating back to the 1870s with a Arrow. black tie dinner. The honoree will be Hillary Chester Clinton, a. Arthur. Oh, who no. lost the presidency to Mr. Trump in 2016. Oh, my gosh. So what is she getting an award for? Who even knows? She's. It's from, it, there's a reference to Alfred Lord Tennyson in here. Oh, the Lotos Club. President's, he was Secretary of State, blah, 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 blah. This is, this is piffle. This is quite some piffle that they piffled here to stretch to Hillary Clinton will be honored. Hillary Clinton remains a boat anchor around the Democratic Party, and if it weren't for her, Donald Trump wouldn't be president. But other than that, the Lotos Club really thinks that she's doing a great job. Keep up the good work. It's amazing. Alfred Lord Tennyson could not be reached for comment. Chris, next up, you would flag Tim Carney's piece, your colleague Tim Carney's piece, in the Washington, in the Washington Examiner about how the Washington Post treats People with political affiliations who get themselves in trouble in sex crimes. I, I I think it can be overdone, the thing about, well, did they mention the party? I, I try to mention for political figures when I'm writing, I try to mention the party. 
or either side, and I think that that's just good practice. And but and Republicans have long complained about the double standard, and I've been a little skeptical of that from time to time. But Tim Carney, Montgomery County, Maryland's own, caught a particularly crystalline case. And I'm sorry that this does include some stuff about some very yucky business. But he points out that as of Monday, the Washington Post has four articles about the child pornography arrest of Patrick Wohan, W-O-J-A-H-N, mayor of College Park, Maryland, who resigned in disgrace last month. Read every one of those stories and you will not learn that he is a Democrat and a longtime activist for gay rights and abortion. As of Monday morning, the Post has three stories up on the sex crime prosecution of Tony Lazaro, a Minnesota political operative convicted last week for serial enticing underage girls for sex. All three of the stories have the words GOP or Republican in both the headline and the lead sentence. So why is Lazaro's party in the lead detail in the stories about his sex crimes, but Wohan's party is taken as so totally irrelevant that it's never mentioned? And it goes on from there. So I guess I would I would say it's a good reminder for me to see this. This is this is a real thing that happens. This bias is is a real thing. And we know why is if the Washington Post had a story that said notable Democrat arrested on perv charges, it would it would not please their readers. But talking about a Republican would. And this is what we talk about in Broken News. This is what we talk about about capture. This is sucking up to your audience in a way that is harmful to their understanding of the facts. Over to Fox News. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is Eric Wemple. Eric Wemple, media critic at The Washington Post, and a very good one, breaks down breaks down the what... So Fox News' argument is about cherry-picking in the lawsuit against them, and he goes through, Wemple goes through, and breaks it down in a very useful way. If you're looking for a way to understand the nature of the case in a concise fashion. This is the Dominion case against Fox. Yeah, this is, this is a good one as they get ready to go to trial. Tell us more. About what? Or not. We're just flagging this for <laughs> I'm just, I mean, okay. we know the trial's coming up. We'll see what okay. happens. So this is your primer. Yes. For the trial that is set to begin April 17th. That's right. Okay. And we got to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene on 60 Minutes. Isn't that a hoot? Sitting down with Leslie Stahl. Isn't that a hoot? Um, let's play a clip to give people a taste. People say that you are Trump in high heels. I didn't intentionally style myself after President Trump, but I can see how people draw those similarities. We both come from the same industry, construction. Um, I also have pretty much a plain speaking style, and, and so does he. But also, he's often in attack mode. Mm. And you appear to be. Yeah, I think, but I think our government deserves it. They don't really deserve to be respected that much. Including for her, the president. While many consider Marjorie Taylor Greene's behavior outlandish, even thuggish, MAGA activists and right-wing media eat it up. God bless you you guys and keep up the good work. Thank you. So Marjorie Taylor Greene liked it. She said, what did she say? She said this is a semaphore piece. It wasn't bad, she told Semaphore Sunday night. I thought it was pretty good. And I've gotten nonstop text messages from golly, golly, so many people in my district and my family and my friends. Well, I loved this because people went bananas that, you know, Leslie Stahl, that they gave Marjorie Taylor Greene this platform that Leslie Stahl wasn't correcting her at every turn. I love this because these people are meant for each other. What 60 Minutes deserves is Marjorie Taylor Greene. These people are like basically intellectual equivalents and 
Perfect. Perfect. A perfect match. So she's Marjorie Taylor Greene is as she has entered the Republican leadership uh, and become a acolyte to Kevin McCarthy is trying to mainstream and 60 minutes. I don't. Did you watch the thing? Yes. How was it? Was Not she tough? good. No, she wasn't tough. It was giving giving her a credit, giving her a platform. All right. Well, there you have it. It was perfect. There you have it. So I want to make sure that people are aware. We've talked about Evan Gershkovitz, Gershkovich, the reporter for the Wall Street Journal who is being held by Russian authorities for his reporting there and being accused of being a spy. He remains in custody. The Biden administration, media outlets, all sorts of folks are working to try to get him freed. And for now, and we'll put the link in there, the Wall Street Journal has made all of his reporting available for free. You can go read it. You'll be impressed. You'll understand that he is a truly an impressive reporter doing a truly good job. Awesome. Yes. More on the Wall Street Journal. The Spectator, which has been doing wonderful media reporting. Amber Athey at The Spectator has been doing great media reporting. And we always talk about how actual reporting on the media is in short supply because these people don't report on each other. Reports on the fact that the Wall Street Journal has hired a head of DEI. And Amber writes- Diversity, equity, and inclusion. There you go. Uh, So she writes that the News Corp-owned media outlet announced in May 2022 that they were bringing on Robin Turner to be the vice president of training, culture, and community. Oof. Doesn't sound good, Chris, does it? Her charge was to work with Dow Jones newsrooms, including the Wall Street Journal, to, quote, drive DE&I strategy into all aspects of our global business. In 2014, Turner helped create the Politico Journalism Institute, a fellowship program aimed at giving people of color hands-on newsroom experience. Three years later, she was still serving as a copy editor, but her focus on increasing diversity at Politico landed her an additional title, Manager of Diversities Programs. Then she was promoted again to be Politico's Director of Editorial Diversity Initiatives. So she, and she is the person who facilitated this big struggle session at Politico with the former Politico reporter, Gabby Orr, about her coverage of trans issues. Yes. In which she was told, Gabby, who was told that the use of the term biological sex was not okay. Anyhow, this is the person now running DEI at the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. And, so, and, enjoy, and, folks. <laughs> All right. New York Times. for And this is a, a theme I come back to again and again and again. For lower-income students, big tech internships can be hard to get. And the New York Times goes through, this is a piece by Natasha Singer, technology reporter, goes through and talks about how it's hard for poor kids to get really, really impressive tech sector internships. And you know what else it's hard for poor kids to get? Almost everything. It's hard for poor kids to get almost everything. And she goes through, and this is just, this is a theme I come back to. It's a motif that I come back to all of the time. Of course, it's better to have rich parents than not have rich parents. Of course, it's better to come from a stable, comfortable background than it is to be poor. That's why we want people not to be poor, right? That's, that's what, that's the entire thinking is that it's worse to be poor. So this long, I mean, long story to state a shockingly obvious thing, which is rich kids have the time and means to prepare themselves in ways to get these internships at these big firms that set them up for success in later life. I don't know what to tell you. 
Like, I really don't know what to tell you. We could say the same thing about any activity, any endeavor that young people are engaged in. We can probably find a correlation between having affluent parents and success. I bet that's true. So, like, I don't get I don't. I don't get it. Chris, we've heard all week oh about gosh, this. There, there's been a lot of commentary about Jill Biden's invitation of the losing women NCAA women's basketball team to the White House. The Atlantic writes a piece, Angel Reese can shine as brightly as she wants. Well, what are, what are your thoughts about this, Bruhaha? I could care le- I really could care less. And the, the, I should have seen it coming, and I sensed something. Did you watch the game? No. Nate Moore. Not a big women's basketball man. Nate Moore, who is, by the way, rocking a linen. Uh, I know. I noticed that. Really jacket. nice. The sweaters have, have segued seamlessly. Well, it got hot like overnight here. It's gross. Crazy. Which is why I am sweating like a hooker in church right now. The Nate says it was a good game. It was a high scoring game. Is this true? Okay. 102.85 for women's basketball. It's a very high scoring game. Uh, and then what happened was the, what's her name? Angel Reese did a, a prodigious amount of trash talking around the game. And of course it was seized upon as a metaphor about race in America. And then Jill Biden said, well, both teams should come to the white house because it's really great. And then that was deemed to be racist. And it was a, it was a cornucopia of the politicization of sports as it relates to gender and as it relates to race. And it was a real woof moment. What do we have next? Take us there. Elon Musk, Twitter strips, NYT, a verified check mark. I mean, I could care less. Well, here it, it happened. What did, and Elon Musk did, oh yes, they, Twitter also bl- named NPR state media. I, I honestly, I'm not a big fan of Twitter. I don't like social media, so I'm and but I like Elon Musk more or less. I like I, I'm fine, but like if he ruins Twitter, I'm totally fine with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just don't care about any of this. Well, read, listeners, you that's and that's why you. I come. am sure that's not why you come crying here. a freaking river <laughs> about the New York Times losing its blue check status. I mean, who cares? I think it's the gold check status. Do you care about this next one? Yes, 100% I care about this. Okay. If it's a New York Post story, I'm like definitely going to care. Well, it's a real piece of garbage. It's a New York Post story that meet the Whitakers inside America's most inbred family that speaks in grunts by Ben Cost. Guys, does this sound like tabloid fodder fodder to you or? So you can, the New York Post wouldn't write this about an urban setting. No. They wouldn't go to an urban setting in America and say, look at these inbreds, look at these dummies, look at these rotten people. But they will go to West Virginia and do it. And I can only, everybody is subject to the vagaries of life and the vicissitudes of life. But this is a real piece of trash. This is below even tabloid standards. You could go to plenty of places in the five, seven boroughs, five boroughs? Five. In the five boroughs of New York and find pitiful people living in disgraceful conditions, racked by drug addiction, racked by whatever. But you can go to West Virginia and you can find some hard living folks with some real difficulties and you can talk about what how, how sad and ridiculous they are and gawk at them. And just as a matter of course, as a as a West Virginian, as an Appalachian American, 
this is something an Appalachian American. This is this is something that that never dies. This has been a problem for a long time. It never dies. This is garbage, and stop doing this is what I would say. I will say this reminded me of this is basically many of our cable news channels yeah. is reality shows about families such as this. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. Up next. Oh, it's oh time, time for the style. Don don don. We have. The style section. Did I send this or did you send this? This was amazing. This is a this is a style of, section instant classic. I am a longtime fan of the New York Times style section column. Modern, Modern love. love. And we knew we had a good one when we saw the March thirty first Modern Love piece from Allison Kaplan with the headline When Climate Change Melts Your Relationship. And it immediately made me think of that the Beacon should do some kind of inverse of this where, you know, I was just too right wing for my date would be amazing. But so Allison Kaplan writes, I often wished I had a headlamp when Doug asked me to read aloud to him on the set T. My already poor eyesight. Now wait, before before, before you go on, two things. One, these are people, whether they are rich or not, they're le- leading a very foofy lifestyle, yes. sailing around the Pacific, sa- sailing up and down the Baja coast on their journey to saving whatever, you know, puffer fish or whatever it is that they're doing. And it's just, it's, it, the, the lack of self-reference is profound. It is so profound, I think that perhaps, Eliana Johnson, it would be deserving of an El Recho's theater performance. Do you agree? We can do it. Okay, I think we should do it. Please, please, please begin. I often wished I had a headlamp when Doug asked me to read aloud to him on the settee, my already poor eyesight undoubtedly worsening as I squinted under the dull glow of the lamp's flickering wick. But it made everything feel so romantic. Reading Jack London stories to my lover, lover. his head in my lap, the sailboat gently swaying with the waves, a hundred sea lions barking like dogs and ow, belching ow. under the distant pier. He was right. It wouldn't be the same under LED. Still, I told him about what I had read, how kerosene burns dirtier than almost any other fossil fuel and releases carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide, both terrible for indoor air quality. I told him about initiatives in Africa to replace kerosene lamps and stoves with solar power because the kerosene was poisoning people, giving them asthma and cancer and other awful illnesses. I stumbled over some of the facts I had finished I had, I had listened to the book on tape, and though I had come away convinced that the lantern was bad, I was fuzzy on the details, quite so. Doug sensed my hesitation, and I could hear the doubt in his voice when he said, This really doesn't seem dirty. There's no soot, no smell. I think it's fine. He sat down and began dealing the cards, but I pushed mine away. It's one of the dirtiest fossil fuels you could possibly burn, and it would be so easy to switch. You probably wouldn't even notice, other than maybe we'd actually be able to see at night. Why are you so resistant to doing something that's undeniably better for the Earth? I don't care about the carbon footprint of one measly lantern, he said. I like it, and I'm not going to get rid of it. I hate that you're so apathetic, I said. You're being ridiculous. He said, 
There was a sharp, loud quality to his voice that I'd never heard before. At that point, I uttered some sweeping generalization about privileged men and their lack of empathy, which made him furious that I was turning this into a judgment on his character and that I had become worked up over nothing. I knew I had taken it too far, yet I could not stop. Doug is inarguably not apathetic when it comes to the environment. He has spent most of his adult life in the marine conservation field, working as a research diver gathering data on kelp forests, and more recently working for National Geographic on their Pristine Seas Project, which has helped to create 26 of the largest marine reserves on the planet. It was our shared love of the natural world that had brought us together in the first place. We met on a 20-day rafting trip through the Grand Canyon. Still I worried that the big issues of the world didn't seem to affect Doug the same way they affected me. Our political leanings were more or less aligned, and we shared similar dreams of the future. So I didn't understand how he managed to go about his life without succumbing to the same existential dread and anger that plagued me. What can we do to sink their boat? Can we go... <laughs> can we... How do, how do we sink their boat? Because the, the level of insufferability is... The kelp forest... The, I, I'm happy for the kelp forests that they've got dug. But maybe, I don't know, maybe the, the boat should sink. Wow. Wow. That brings us to. Oh, well, you missed it. We missed it, guys. I hope, you, I hope everybody took advantage of it. That Tuesday, I think it's Tuesday, was National Hug a Newsperson Day. And that people are in, uh, encouraged to give them a squeeze. And I can tell you, I don't know what your experience is. Don't do that. Definitely don't. Certainly not by surprise. And they're probably a little smelly. They may be hungover. You'll startle them, and it could it could end poorly. So I would say don't approach a newsman or a newswoman by surprise on next National Hug a Newsperson Day. Chris. Ma'am. It's that time. Heck yeah. Oh, we've got a great one. It is time for our Obsessions of the Week. Where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. And this week, it's a joint obsession. It's a joint obsession. So I'm going to, li- cut, listen, my friends, and you show here. Here's a, a new intro for the show. Welcome to Inkstained Wretches, the podcast about the news media. I'm Chris Dyerwald, a former Fox News political editor, and I'm here with my co-host, Eliana Johnson, a senior reporter at the Washington Post. We Arr. love the news business, but we hate a lot of what's happening to it these days. So each week, we're going to talk about the news media, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll talk about the stories that matter, the stories that don't, and the stories that are just plain wrong. We'll talk about the people who make the news, the people who report the news, and the people who consume the news. And we'll talk about the future of the news media in a world where everything is news and nothing is news. Everything and nothing. So if you're interested in the news or you're just interested in complaining about the news, this checks out, then this is the podcast for you. We're here to help you make sense of the news and help you be a better, smarter news consumer. So join us each week for Ink Stained Wretches, the podcast about the news media. We'll see you there. So I asked Google's AI Bard to write an intro for Ink Stained Wretches. And it was not brilliant, certainly not as brilliant as our regular introduction. But And it only got one thing wrong, which is they called you a senior reporter at the Washington Post. God forbid. Heaven forfend. Heaven forfend. <laughs> so we, we know that we're a little late to talking. We've talked in the past about consequences of AI for the news business and what it will do 
and by the way, there's a lot of upsides. There's a lot of potential upsides in terms of getting stuff covered and generating copy and all that stuff. And there's potential downsides. We understand. So we asked Bard to write up. How, how did Bard do on its bio of you? Bard did pretty good. It had the facts generally right, but some of the sequencing wrong. I would be fine if I had to submit Bard's bio of me to, like, some organization. I think it it would be serviceable. Close, close enough. Now, I, I don't know that I'd submit in my own biography that Johnson is a controversial figure in the journalism world. Probably wouldn't put that on my own bio. The last graph, yes. However, she is also a respected journalist who has broken several important stories. She's a regular speaker at journalism conferences. Is that right? Are you always no. going to journalism conferences? <laughs> and, all right. So ChatGPT, on the other hand, did poorly in talking about who I am, who it says that I attended Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. <laughs> I don't know where that is in the bachelor's degree in political science. I would never get a degree in political science. I worked for several political campaigns before starting my career in journalism. Now, I did work at the Charleston Daily Mail. I did work at the Washington Examiner. I never worked at the Hill, but I did join Fox News in 2010. I did not write the book, The Beltway Bible, but I did write the book, Every Man and King, A Short Colorful History of American Populace, from 12 books, an imprint of Hachette available at fine booksellers. And I did leave Fox in January of 2021, and I have not started my own media consulting firm, Triad Strategies, LLC, where I do not provide political analysis and strategy to clients. So Bard wins the bio wars. I think that's I think that's clear. Yes. So how I'm just checking out who is Triad Strategies. The Triad Way, elevating diverse voices in decisions that matter. M- makes sense. Who who works at Triad Strategies? I'm afraid to find out I'm who I've been mistaken for. Seeing that they don't here. Have an about us. Team, here we go. Let's see who I've been confused with. Roy Wells. Anybody? He's the visionary. Mike Everybody. Acker is the muscle. Todd Brissiak is the hustler. Savannah Beeler is the social butterfly. Oh Which God. are you of these people? None. None of the above. The the grumpus. I am the I am the grumpus. Is Chris coming in for our Imagineering session today? Wait, oh. Michael Manzo is the triple threat. Oh, what's like he can do? What what? I wonder what the triple threat is. That's very interesting. I'm clicking into his bio. He has worked in the government arena, both inside and outside, for 28 years. Research analyst, standing committee director, communications director. That's the triple threat. Chief of staff and lobbyist during his career in public policy. That's the triple threat. Yep. Okay, so here's the question that is posed in a really interesting Politico piece by Mohar Chatterjee, How to Tell What's Real Online. You'll find it in the show notes, and it talks about how we're going to address these questions this is speaking more to deep fakes, but also open AI, chat GPT and all this stuff. So that I think would be a useful tool for our listeners when they're thinking about how to do this. But here's a cautionary tale. Do you know Jonathan Turley? Yes. Jonathan Turley, who I knew when I worked at Fox, he's a regular Fox. He's a conservative legal analyst who goes on Fox a lot to talk about He's a professor at American University. I think that's right. GW. GW, sorry. And he was, well, tell him the story. What? The ChatGPT invented a sexual harassment scandal. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Eugene Volek, a law professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, conducted the study that named Turley. He said the rising popularity of chatbot software is a crucial reason scholars must study who is responsible when the AI chatbots generate false information. Last week, Volek, hold on, my thing is not doing what I want it to do. Last week, Volek asked ChatGPT whether sexual harassment by professors has been a problem at American law schools. Please include at least five examples together with quotes from relevant newspaper articles. He prompted it. Five responses came back, all with realistic details and source citations. But when Volek examined them, he said three of them appeared to be false. He cited non-existent articles. They cited non-existent articles from papers, including the Post, Miami Herald, and Los Angeles Times. According to the responses shared with the Post, the bot said Georgetown University Law Center professor Jonathan Turley, no, was was accused of sexual harassment by a former student who claimed he made inappropriate comments during a class trip. <laughs> Quote, the complaint alleges that Turley made sexually suggestive remarks and attempted to touch her in a sexual manner during a law school-sponsored trip to Alaska. Now, there was no trip to Alaska. There was no student. There was no action. And that's not where Turley teaches. But the the as we move into the space, what this article is exploring, what is the legal exposure? We're having a lot of conversations these days about slander and libel, defamation. What's the exposure for people who operate a chatbot or a AI that is generating devastating, right? Like if I were Turley, I would be upset that Volokh even put this out there at all because having it written one time in the world of SEO and having it plinking around the internet, that it will multiply and multiply and multiply. So there are serious consequences to what we're talking about Yeah, and what if someone thinks I worked at the Washington Post? Heaven forfend. Heaven forfend. Heaven forfend. As long as you get the, as long as you get to share a desk with what's her name, Taylor, uh, Taylor Lorenz so, or Felicia Sanmez. Felicia Sanmez. That's right. Either way, both um, both aces. All right, we have come to my favorite time of the week, which is reader mail. And this week we have a note from Ted Smith in Salt Lake City, and Ted writes, "Eliana and Chris, love your show." Here's something right in Chris's wheelhouse. This week, I ran across a story published in the Jewish World Review by Jeff Jacoby, who wrote for many years for the Boston Globe. Jeff has recently discovered the great L.A. crime novels featuring Ah. Detective Harry Bosch. I love that show. Written by Michael Connolly. Bosch is an old-timer with a keen eye to changes in culture. In the course of reading one of the Bosch books, Jacoby ran across the following observations by Bosch. Bosch counted 22 names of reporters and made and it made him miss the old Los Angeles Times. In 1993, it was big and strong. Its editions fat with ads and stories produced by a staff of some of the best and brightest journalists in, the, in their field. Now the paper looked like somebody who had been through chemo, thin, unsteady, and knowing the inevitable could only be held off for so long. Jacoby concludes, like somebody who had been through chemo, what a bleakly apt comparison and how desolating for anybody who fell in love with what newspapers used to be before the digital onslaught began to take its inexorable toll. Great writing by Connolly and true observation by Jacoby. Depressing, but true. Thank you, Ted Smith. But I will say this. I don't yearn for the days of big fat Sunday newspapers. I want to go forward, right? I I work hard not to be nostalgic for the old print days because that's not coming back and that's harmful thinking because it fetishes it fetishizes a past that never really was nostalgia as i say so often is the yearning for a past that never was and what what i want is apps 
and websites that are chock-a-block, rich, interesting, and diverse. Up next, Chris, Mm -hmm. we come to your favorite time of the week. Where I am forced to say something nice, and this week it is no problem. So have you seen the show? Have you seen the show Hot Ones? No. Okay. So a YouTube sensation. The guy who hosts it is Sean Evans, who is a a bald pated charming sort of youngish guy and the premise of the show is they get celebrities to come on the show and they eat well here i'll tell you bob odenkirk do you like bob odenkirk love I oh love my gosh bob. i'm I watching love. better call, call oh, Saul right now i envy so you the chance to watch good. it for the first time it is time. so good i'm loving it bob odenkirk was dubious when he walked onto the set of long running youtube interview show hot ones last month this is by maya salam uh, he was, after all, about to take on the wings of death, as the lineup of treacherously spicy chicken is called. I've heard such good things about the show, Odenkirk told Sean Evans. It's even killed host once cam- cam- cameras were rolling. But I think I'm perfectly capable of talking without having a part of my body injured. Despite peppering the interview with a couple of F-bombs, Odenkirk, the Emmy-nominated actor from Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, underwent a familiar shift. He'd warmed up emotionally particularly after Wing 3, when Evans, quoting a 1989 Chicago Tribune article, asked him about his one-man show, Half My Face is a Clown. That was far more entertaining and fun than I thought it would be, Odenkirk said in the closing credits through spice-induced coughs. And it's corny, right, to think we're going to get celebrities to come on. So you could see how this would easily turn into a man-versus-food doofus show. Like you get Logan Paul or whatever to come on to see who can eat the spiciest wing. But they take this unusual challenge and then they ask thoughtful questions, right? And what happens along the way is that the guard of the celebrity is taken down by the physical discomfort that they're in. Do you like hot food? Yeah. So you are familiar with the feeling of the physical response that when your body, like you're sweating uncontrollably. You're well, bo- I, I don't eat food that's that hot. But you've had, you know the feeling when you've eaten something too hot, yes. right? There's a visceral, autonomic, like your body responds. And the premise of the show is that using that, they get interesting answers from people and the answers have been really interesting. And the number of celebrities that they've gotten to do it is really interesting. So I, Hot Ones was a slow burn all along, is my favorite item of the week because I'm glad to see the Times giving some attention to Sean Evans and his chicken wings. Well, my favorite item of the week was so obvious. It was this amazing variety report by Tatiana Siegel, headline, Don Lemon's misogyny at CNN exposed, malicious texts, mocking female coworkers, and diva-like behavior. Suffice it to say, Chris, I think he's past his prime. The internet said, I'm looking at the internet, Google it, it says that Don Lemon has passed his prime. How does this guy persist? Well, what was so interesting about this piece, I would say the best anecdote in this piece is that One of his colleagues, Kira Phillips, a former colleague, was getting threatening anonymous text messages, and she reported them to CNN higher-ups and security, and basically they were traced back to Lemon. And anyhow, what comes out of this piece when you read it, and you should if interested in CNN and Don Lemon, is that his ill-advised, stupid bullying behavior of his colleagues and his female colleagues is not new. It's just been permitted as he's been promoted at CNN over all of these years. So nobody should be surprised. 
it's I don't know. There's just no. I cannot figure what the upside to keeping Don Lemon is. I don't. I don't understand what it is that he's supposed to be doing at this point. But when you read these stories about the, I mean, I can say having worked in TV, I have seen monstrous anchors, and part of what happens is they make them into monsters because they want them to be big personalities, and then after they become monsters, they don't know how to control them. But you read this, and you're like, come on, who need Don Lemon? Move, move it along. Well, that is all the time we have left for the news about the news. Do not forget to please Don't sign forget. up to our newsletter. Yes. Email us, wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com, wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. Make it lake washed. Yes. To sign up for the newsletter and please leave us a rating and review. We would be so grateful. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.